0: Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Well, hi there. I am so happy that you're here listening today with September right around the corner. I can't believe that September is coming up so soon. We are having a special guest on our show today to uh, talk about his nonprofit organization. He's doing some incredible work, and September is a really special month because it has been designated as the National Recovery Month. So every September since 1989, um, we've been observing um, and focusing attention on substance abuse recovery and mental health issues and how the two coincide, and. Um, some of the recovery practices and evidence-based treatments that can really help people who are struggling with alcohol and drug addiction issues and mental health issues um, to find freedom and find recovery. And so uh, our guest today, Taylor Hunt, is the founder of the Trini Organization or sorry, the Trini Foundation, rather. And the Trini Foundation is a nonprofit organization dedicated to introducing the transformational practice of Ashtanga Yoga to individuals who have been in recovery or who are currently in recovery that um, have struggled in the past with drug and alcohol addiction. And so for the month of September, they are having a special call to all yoga studios and, yoga teachers and anyone who would like to get involved in hosting a class, either in person or online, um, to help increase awareness and understanding surrounding substance abuse issues. Um, and all of the money and all of the donations that are made to the Trini organization will go directly towards uh, supporting the teachers who go into these recovery centers and offer classes free of charge for um the those in the recovery programs, and also providing tuition scholarships for those who come out of recovery programs to be able to attend classes at uh, yoga schools. Uh, the Trini Foundation will actually pay for their yoga membership, and so as we all know, yoga is sometimes a little costly, and especially if you're already um, down on your luck a little bit and you're needing some support and some help we know how beneficial the practices of ashtanga yoga can really be in transforming um, lives i think if you're listening to this you've probably experienced for yourself already the transformative aspect of the practice and so what better way to be able to help those who really are in a place where they could use and benefit from the Ashtanga yoga practice to help them, you know, create that strength, that resiliency, um, to feel comfortable and in. in their own skin again and their own bodies, and to cultivate a deeper relationship with themselves and with a higher power. So, um, I'm really excited to talk today, of course, to Taylor Hunt, and I think that addiction, alcohol abuse, drug abuse is something that you know sometimes we um, talk about on the show, or we've t- we've had many people who have been in recovery and also um, myself and Russell, both of our parents and grandparents uh, were alcoholics or are alcoholics. And so it's a issue that um, touches deeply. It's a very personal issue and something that um, is close to our hearts. And so we're really happy to support Taylor and the Trini Foundation today and for the entire month of September. And if you'd like to join me for my online class, I am going to be hosting the class on September 18th, and all of the money raised will go directly to the Trini Foundation. This is a Saturday morning. It will happen at 6 a.m. Pacific time or 9 a.m. Eastern time, which is, I think, Uh, 3 p.m 2 p.m in the UK (laughs) so if you'd like to join and support the Trini Foundation you can come and practice with me a primary series and we can have a little conference after the class to connect with each other I would love for you to come and join and participate and for the month of September we're just encouraging everyone to um, you know be sober and join in the in the recovery movement and you know support those around you who are struggling or need help and you know be that shining light that i know you already all are so i can't wait to get into this wonderful interview and story with taylor hunt and he's going to talk a lot more about uh, the trini foundation and all of the incredible work that they are doing And, um, yeah, let's let's just jump right in. The following program contains coarse language and content that some listeners may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony. Hi, Harmony. Hi, and this is Russell. (laughs)
1: You you may know this, um, but you real. I don't know if you listen to the show but real friends of the po- of the podcast, they know that our our podcast is about two things, uh-huh. uh, digestion and drug use. <laughs> and so today- <laughs> Or the looks,
0: lack of digestion?
1: Well, it, all sorts of, yeah. Um, today, we're going to talk about both, I think. Hopefully. Yeah,
0: we have somebody who really needs no introduction, I don't think. He's very well known in our Ashtanga Yoga community. And that's Taylor Hunt. Hi, Taylor. How are you?
2: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show, Harmony. Well, we're it.
0: so happy that you're here. Taylor has his own podcast, The Heartbreak Kids,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and his is Shala. his own Shala. He's the founder of Ashtanga Yoga Columbus, and you're kind of like an Instagram star.
2: I don't know <laughs> if that's true. I mean, I, I piss off people. That's what I do. <laughs> so um. you're
0: like Instagram infamous?
2: Uh, I mean, I think that if you ask some people, I'd be Instagram infamous for sure. Um, I just say what I want to want to say, and I don't really like social media anymore. And so I literally just let it, I just let it rip. Wow.
0: Well, you get a lot of attention. I know that.
2: (laughs) I mean, I think it's just because I speak my mind.
0: Yeah, that's a good thing, though. That's a good quality.
1: Harmony, you were on Taylor's podcast, The Heartbreak Kids. I
0: was. You can go listen to the episodes.
1: And uh, did you speak your mind?
0: Yeah, it's it's an in-depth look <laughs> a, at yeah. all kinds of
1: things. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> was it a struggle, Taylor, to get her to talk about herself? Because she doesn't, doesn't do
2: that much here. You know, I think because I made her feel uh, safe and warm and it was in my house and it was like, you know... Um, a supportive, a supportive environment that, uh, she opened up to me. That's
1: <laughs> right. Oh, that's yeah. the problem with this podcast to a T is that I don't make her feel safe. And poor. <laughs> <laughs> I... oh, that's it, man. That's exactly right. I, I have an intro for you. I know our guests know you. Some of them might, may not, um, some of the, you know, This is mostly from Martha down in Florida, in case she doesn't know you, Um, (laughs) Valerie, uh, as as well. So, Taylor, you teach the daily Mysore class at Ashtanga Yoga Columbus. You offer workshops around the world. You're author of the book, Away from Darkness, and director of the Trini Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to sharing the life-changing practice of Ashtanga with those suffering from addiction. Today's show, which is why we wanted to do this today, honors the National Recovery Month. It's a national observance held every September to educate Americans that substance use treatment and mental health services can enable those with a mental or substance use disorder to live a healthy and rewarding life. And so we're we're grateful that you'd come on the show and and talk to you talk to us about that. Taylor, can you? Can you tell us what, what that means for you?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, first off, uh, Russell, it is it's literally something that we've done for the last five years. Um, you know, we've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for the training foundation to offer scholarships for people who are struggling with addiction, um, and go into uh, like and send them into yoga communities on scholarships that the Trinity foundation essentially pays for. And um, and every September, we're trying to raise funds for it uh, because, I mean, if if you've ever been around someone who struggled with addiction, they don't have money to do yoga. And so it's like a, I feel like it's an essential. And with that essential, like, you know, you have to do it. And if you're if you don't have the money for it, it's a real bummer. And so the, the National Recovery Month is something that we've uh, the training Foundation has sort of dovetailed. Uh, like with, and what we're trying to do is raise awareness, but also like provide access. And that's a really, it's a really big deal because yoga can be transformative. Uh, it's been that in my life and countless others. And so National Recovery Month is us like, it's a, it's a little bit of a rally cry. Um, you know, we're, we're asking people to get involved, to teach classes, to make donations, to understand what addiction means or what it means to be an addict. Um, so that people can face their problems so that there's not, uh, you know, they're, they don't have anything, you know, stuck in their closet, you know, or have this hidden addiction, because it's happening way too often, uh, definitely because of the pandemic.
0: Yeah, especially because of the pandemic. I think it's really increased addiction issues for sure.
2: Yeah,
1: there's a a song by my my um... My favorite country western artist, uh, John Prine, uh, called "Sam Stone." Do you know that song? I don't. I don't. There's a line in the song: um, "There's a hole in in Daddy's arm where all the, all the money goes," and it it always sort of stuck with me because I knew that you know about my uncle um, that he was spending thirty or forty thousand dollars a year shooting coke, and that was it's an unthinkable amount of money. Um, certainly, I've seen you know. The amount of money my own parents have spent um on on drugs, which is an extraordinary amount of money um, it's uh it it's I, I really I really liked what you said there that you know because of the addiction issue you don't have the resources you may want to spend getting yourself healthy and you know offering a scholarship for people who are struggling um not predicated on them being. Well, actually, let me ask that question. Is it predicated on them being clean or is it predicated on them trying to get better?
2: Uh, Man, that's a difficult question. So uh, what I can tell you is it's based off of individuals' needs, whether it's financial or the ability of them wanting to get healthy. And so we weigh actually both of them. They fill out an application. We screen screen the application. And then we also uh, call them and set up an interview. Um, and those are questions that we ask like, hey, what's the financial need? Uh, are you sober? Uh, do you want to be more sober or get more out of your recovery? Or are you uh, just are, are you still drinking and using today? And we've had all different ranges. If they're still drinking and using um, it's not necessarily a very good thing for them to come to a yoga community because, I mean, they would literally a lot of a lot of the drugs have to be medically detoxed um, from yeah. from them. And so typically the people that are like in severe, I would say like severe need, we send them to treatment centers. Um, and, and that's like one of the ways that we sort of, you know, we end up being a resource for the community because people reach out to us all the time and they they actually need um, a different level of care than what we're actually talking about, you know, like offering yoga scholarship.
1: And right? do, you, do you then pay for them to go to the, to the, the center? Are you, are you contributing to the center, or is it just a, you're providing resources for them um, geographically, for lack of a better word?
2: Yeah, so if they want to go to like a treatment center, um, they would uh, they would basically have to be on uh, Medicaid or they would have to have private insurance, but that's not really what Trini's mission is. Eventually, I do believe that it will probably get there, um, where we help people in treatment center. But basically, uh, Trini Foundation's um, mission is that we're trying to provide access to yoga because we believe it's a life saving tool um, for a person's recovery. So we, we're trying to get them into yoga, Russell, where like, you know, if they have a need or if they feel like they need to um, go to actually like a medical detox center, we turn it over to someone else um, so that they so that they can do it. And then when they come through that process, and maybe it's 30, 30 days or 10 days or 60 days, however long it is, eventually uh, they will... I mean, hopefully they'll come back to us and and ask for a scholarship or do our yoga classes that, you know, we teach in all types of treatment centers. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, a lot of treatment centers. I'm not not sure the exact number. I was going to say hundreds, but um, it's something, it's a lot of treatment center classes that we're doing.
0: And so you have sort of an initiative as well where you're training um, teachers or practitioners of yoga who then are going into these centers and offering classes. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. So in 2016, um, I was in Mysore, India and I finished writing my book. And I remember taking it to Schrat's office and, I, and uh, giving him the manuscript of it. Wow. And, um, and I said, you know, you're in this and I don't want to offend you. So can you read it? And he, he grabbed it he like looked at it for a second, slid it back to me. and He said like, Hey, I trust you um, with writing whatever you need to write. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, wow, that's amazing. Um, Well, in that same conversation, um, I was like, I'm also starting a nonprofit so that people don't have to struggle the way that I did. And, um, and I told him that I wanted to do basically train like trainings, you know, something that like in a strong world, it's like, you know, um, I don't know if it's frowned upon, but it's definitely something that it's borderline whether or not you should be doing them or not.
1: Well, you Um, need permission for it. That's for damn sure.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So I asked for permission and uh, he said I could do training. So I, I, the initiative is basically that I have this program that I teach teachers to teach in treatment centers. Um, I don't really train people who are not teachers to be teachers. Uh, it's more like you know, training a teacher to already be a teacher or, or like specialize them. Oh, it's like a fellowship. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And a little bit of apprenticeship or a little bit of mentorship, but I, but we basically send them into treatment centers after they get done with the program and uh, the training foundation pays them, you know? So, you know, AYC, Ashtanga Yoga Columbus has, I don't know, maybe 10, 10 teachers, but the training foundation has like, I don't know it could be upward at any given time. I mean, it changes all the time because of, um, access or, but it could be a hundred, it could be 25, it could be 50. Um, so we have a lot of teachers that are out there teaching the Shtanga method, like literally as traditional as we possibly can be inside addiction treatment centers. And that's for, we have some for mental health, um, for eating. Uh, most of them are for drugs and alcohol.
0: Wow. So if I were interested in becoming, a teacher in one of these facilities how would i do that
2: well i mean first off i wouldn't have to train you
0: (laughs) (laughs) well i mean is there some like particular issues or like like topics that you would cover outside of you know just Um, teaching asana
2: oh yeah i mean we cover trauma sensitive we cover like how to operate the class what the like what kind of abbreviations or modifications you can make with the practice that are acceptable. And th- those are obviously per charade. Um, and, uh, you know, so we have like a, basically a course that talks about all that stuff. We have, we talk about the problem of what addiction and what's happening in, in society today. Um, we talk to therapists about uh, reading rooms and reading bodies and uh, we talk about adjustments and we talk about power structure in the room. Um, you know, uh, we we literally talk about so much um, so much stuff in the, in these trainings. and um, it it covers everything. Uh, yeah, but it but so they have to go through the training or they have to be an authorized teacher uh, in order to to basically teach from us.
0: And then I would go to a center and offer classes and and is the center then sort of gifting these classes to people in recovery, and then I'm submitting my Scheduled classes to you, and then your the Trini Foundation is is reimbursing me for my time.
2: Yeah, so Trini Foundation definitely reimburses all the teachers. We don't take volunteers for teachers. Um, so what what we would do is we would look in your area and we would ask like what treatment centers are like around where Harmony and Russell are, and then we would um, contact them and we would offer them free classes. The only um, stipulation or only requirement for us to have a class is that it has to be mandatory a mandatory part of their program. So they don't get to voluntarily come and go into the yoga class. It is actually part of their treatment uh, plan. Um, and so we've, we've, done, we've done this thousands of times at different studios and, or excuse me, different treatment centers. And um, if it's not mandatory, you can't get the people to show up. And so, um, so it has to be, that's the only requirement. And then once that happens and they say, yeah, we would like free yoga, which is not an easy or not, not a very hard thing to sell. It's pretty easy. Yeah. Um, you know, then we set them the, the uh, teacher up as a contractor and, the, uh, and they basically clock in and clock out uh, via an app. Uh, and it has geo uh, like geolocation, so it tells us when they were there and how long they were there. And they clock in, and when they're done with the class, they clock out. Wow! And um, it gets recorded, and then they get a wire of money at the end of the month for however many classes. And currently, our rate, which I think is actually pretty good um, for an hour class, is thirty dollars. So we That's pay true. thirty dollars a class for every teacher. And so there's two programs that the Trinity Foundation does. One is we pay teachers to go into treatment centers and teach. And that's what we raise money for. The second thing is once the person gets out of the treatment center, we pay for scholarships for them to continue yoga once they're out of the facility. Oh, um, oh. And so, and we raise money for that. So 20 foundation will pay for a person's pass for three months to a yoga studio. Actually, we've had people on as long as a year. Um, but we, we literally pay for a three month pass. We contact the studio. We tell them that we have a potential person that uh, could come to their class. And that's a relatively easy conversation too, with, uh, with um, you know, studios, because you're, essentially giving them an extra student. And the only requirement there is that the person who's getting the scholarship has to show up three days a week. Nice. Right. Yeah. And so they have to show up three days a week. And if they don't show up three days a week, the pass is just canceled. You know, so we end up paying for a month and maybe they don't show up. But we've had really good retention rates. I mean, we've had, I mean, and also we're uh, aligned with like some really, um, uh, really great teachers. I mean, there's amazing teachers that, you know, and, and studios that are aligned with us. So like, you know, a person who is fresh off the streets, straight out of treatment center, they're right into a healthy yoga community with a strong teacher that is teaching them the transformative tool of Ashtanga yoga. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It's exactly what happened to me. Um, but we're replicating it, you know, we've scaled the process. So it's not just me that have went through this process of, treatment, 12 steps, sponsorship, and then all the way to, um, you know, like learning yoga.
1: I, we do really want to ask you in depth more about your own personal story, if, if you'd be happy to share. One, one follow-up question I have for you, you first, if you don't mind, is when I think about, for me personally, my own um, experience with Ashtanga Yoga uh, is that it's extraordinarily emotionally uh, challenging environment. Uh, so much of the time you're you're face to face with your own habits, your own choices, uh, the kind of person you think you are compared to you know what the teacher is, is trying to transform you into. I felt, especially as a young man, that that transformation was um, was a really very challenging period in my life, and I and I wonder. Um, I wonder if that sort of thing can be especially triggering for someone in recovery.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it definitely can be, you know, I mean, that's, uh, it's sort of the same thing as what we were, what I told you, um, how Harmony opened up to me, (laughs) you know, like we're trying to create, um, you know, there's studio guidelines with how to have those people in there. But of course, I mean, the practice The practice is almost designed to do that. Right. I mean, it, it, and so of course it's triggering, but you know, the practice is not responsible for the person being triggered. And I think that's where a lot of times, like our society has got a little messed up. You're responsible for your reactions to being triggered Mm -hmm. and good teaching, I think, uh, takes people into a place of personal responsibility. And, and of course the practice brings it up. The environment is as safe as you can make it. Um, the, the relationship between teacher and student is as, uh, as good and stand up and straightforward as it possibly can be. But of course they're going to be triggered, but it is much better to be triggered in a yoga class and, and be in a safe environment and, um, and feel supported. Than to be out on the streets and be triggered by someone or an old friend and then be directly right back to using drinking using again. That's a completely different uh, you want to be triggered and you want to overcome the trigger. And then once that happens, then you want to take that lesson that was learned of how to control it or how it kind of you know brought things up for you or made you get squirrely or whatever. And then. Um, You want to bring it under somewhat control and then you want to take that lesson out into your life. Right. And that's another way that the yoga practice is really powerful.
0: Yeah. It it builds that resiliency and that strength of confidence that you can overcome, you know, your addictive um, patterns, right? That you feel like the need to go use or to drink or you know, whatever the trigger might be, but then you're able to just sit with those uncomfortable feelings or that discomfort and, and, and not react or respond in that pattern.
2: Yeah. I mean, it brings a huge amount of awareness. I mean, you know, for all of us, we practice for a long time. And um, I mean, sometimes I think that we get so far away from, you know, us being beginners that we don't realize, like how intense the practice is, or maybe we do. But I, you know, from my experience, it's like the whole practice is like—I I mean, it's extremely difficult. Yeah, <laughs> it <know>? is. <laughs> it, it's extremely difficult, and so you know, we're just trying as teachers for in Trini Foundation is to be as mindful um, as you know as we possibly can be with how we're teaching it, you know, so that the people can get the benefit out of the. Um, you know out of the practice
1: it's interesting you know I've, I've seen a lot of guys um through my my time in Mysore who would use to get themselves through the practice to get themselves ready for the next day and then you know i've i've seen and um i've seen that in myself um whether i'm using you know muscle relaxants or or you know um anti-inflammatories um, or I've also seen in myself a, a desire to to break my sobriety, if um, if I feel like a sense of um, that there's no use trying hard anymore. Like yeah. why why try to achieve an ashtanga yoga anymore at, at, at my age and my you know my um, you know my back issues or what have you. So fuck it. I'll you know why stay sober. It,
2: it, I guess
1: I'm not sure there's a question there other than I wonder if um, if does that resonate with you personally?
2: Um, You know, I I mean, I want to stay sober and I want to use the practice uh, to its full potential because it's empowered me. You know, like I have seen people that have used muscle relaxers and also practice. Yeah, like, yeah. On, the, on the same day. Yeah. No wonder you can put your leg behind your head, bro. That, that That's, I'm, I was talking about myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I'm I, I, like, it is such a process of, um, coming to realness that I, I like, I can't even foresee a time. And like, it that doesn't, it doesn't even make sense to me, Russell, mm-hmm. you know, like, like, I think that the people that might be using drugs or whatever, and then also doing their practice, they didn't, they don't have a problem like how I did, you know, like my practice was, my practice was, uh, you know, was non-existent. If I was, if I was drinking and using, it wouldn't happen. I I mean, I'm dying. I'm not living at that point. You know, can you talk
1: about that a, a little bit further? Cause I, 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 that really resonates with me that, um, I know that if I use today, I'm not going to end up. Um, you know, if I if I have a drink today or um, a stimulant of some kind, I'm not going to end up um, out of a job and homeless in three days. But for but for people there, it seems like for a lot of there are um, structurally there are people that if they break their sobriety. That's the hole it it, they slide down to immediately. Would would you would you agree with that assessment?
2: I mean, that's it. If if I drink or use again, you will be seeing my obituary. Like there there is no doubt in my mind. I I have um, I've seen I've you know I basically went through treatment um, program four times. And it it progressively got worse and worse. And also maybe the 30 people that I knew that were doing the same thing as me, 28 of them are dead or 27 of them are dead. It's been replicated over and over and over again that like, if you go and drink again, you die. Like there is like, I mean, and it's as real as it possibly can get. And that's what I think that people don't understand about me and also I don't think that they understand about addiction. You know, because I truly believe I mean, part of the reason why I put myself out there and part of the reason why I do the Trinity Foundation stuff and I say what I want on my social media stuff and all of this stuff is is, is literally because I am trying to be me to the hundred percent, like uh, to the fullest I can possibly be, because like I literally uh, know that what I'm dealing with right now is that I'm, I have a second chance. And when you live your whole life, like it's a second chance, like you stop caring about what other people think of you. And it's literally like, how do you live life to the fullest? Like you want to go do this thing or you want to start a business or you want to find your passion or purpose or any of this sort of stuff. It's like, like the reason why I do it is because I know that it's so scary. Like it's, uh, well, it's scary because like one, two, three bad decisions And then you're reading on Facebook where I'm not here anymore. Yeah. And I don't ever want to get to that spot. And I don't feel like I am at that spot. But like most addicts are, I would say like on average are like what, five bad decisions away from drinking and using again. Yeah. (laughs) Right. On a good day.
0: Yeah.
2: Like I'm in remission. Like like on a good day, I'm maybe eight or nine decisions away from drinking and using again. On a bad day, I'm like two.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. You know, yeah. and like when it's that black or white, you have seen so much death and overdose and stuff. It's like, I'm living every day. It's like, Hey, you want to go on vacations? Like, yeah, let's do it. You know, it's like, there's, I'm not holding anything back. It's like, Hey, you want to do a workshop in Cape town? It's like, yes, let's do that. You know, like you want to start a new business? Like, can you want to help people with addiction? It's like, yes, let's do that. Cause I don't know if I have that much time left. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. it, like wow. I mean, it's literally sort of what the whole thing is built on. And so I get a chance to make it to my yoga mat. I get a chance to pray. I get a chance to connect with my uh, sobriety network of people and sponsor. Um, I get a chance to help other people with teaching, you know, uh, all of that stuff like puts me basically in this daily reprieve from, you know, this spiritual affliction that I have, uh, and this mental obsession that, you know, was present in my life for a really long time.
1: Can we, let's, can we talk about that more? I'd like to, to learn. You're from Ohio. You're raised in, in Columbus or?
2: Yes. Yeah, born and, in, yeah.
1: And so what was when you were a kid, can you can you point to a moment in your life where you where you can see why that kid started using? And can you talk about when you first started?
2: Well, I never really felt like I had the playbook to life. Um, And that really happened when I was about like seven, like from my earliest memories, like I felt like I couldn't fit in with other kids, Um, you know, and uh, back then and kind of coming up like, you know, that's like a major thing where you feel like you can't connect with your peers nowadays. Like, I'm like, I'm okay with being the black sheep. I don't care. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm perfectly fine with it. But uh, back then, it, like, I really struggled with connecting with people. And, I, and that doesn't happen today. Like, I, I feel like I'm able to connect. Um, but I sort of didn't have this playbook to life. And, and um, my dad was really this uh, huge figure in my life. I mean, biggest, uh, more than any friends or, I, I mean, I spent so much time with him. And, um, you know, there was, uh, infidelity in my mom and dad's relationship and, you know, they, they literally, uh, divorced and I was left there and I didn't know how to deal with my feelings. And that was really the moment where I felt so uncomfortable that the only thing that I, um, could think about is like not feeling the way that I wanted that the way that I felt at that moment. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I mean, I went down and I literally started drinking on that day. Mm-hmm. Not when you were seven, but you were a little older. Yeah. So, uh, I so I wasn't seven. This would have been a uh, seven. I, I started we were seven, eight, like my earliest memories. I realized that I just didn't fit in with people. Um, and so this like sort of hole was there. And then when I, around 15 years old, I think like it sort of expressed itself in addiction and it expressed itself uh, through, um, you know, my parents getting divorced. That's,
1: that's interesting because I, I, you know, my parents divorced when I was nine. And, you know, I knew that their, their addiction issues, you know, they were cocaine users and distributors of, of, in Detroit and I'd gone to federal prison for that. Or at least my you know, my dad did. Um but I also knew that they were the kind of people that when they just they just said one day, like, we're not gonna use cocaine anymore and they just they just stopped. Um so I was aware of all these things and ashamed of all these things and very much aware of of like you said, being like you know, having this story in my backpack that I was walking around with all the time. And feeling really very different and very different from other kids. And yet when I started using, I was I was I was using because I thought it was cool. And I, I thought it was somehow associated with spiritual enlightenment. Drinking. Um I was more interested in psychedelics. Right. Yeah. And and so I was it wasn't so much um that I was looking to make things go away as much as I was trying to, to maybe probe further, you know, what I was. And, you know, ultimately what I discovered is that I was a big fucking hole. Um, like, you know, so I, I, wanted to ask you that, about that. Like if you, if you, if you felt like that there was any kind of status with using, or were you were you really hiding shame?
2: Um, wow, yeah I, I saw this question on on the questions that you sent over, and uh, and I saw shame. I, and honestly, like my first, uh, I mean, my first thought was that it's actually what we're hiding from is more of our trauma. We're trying to regulate our nervous system so that we uh, feel better with our life circumstances. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's based in trauma and shame can be in there. But I think it's, um, and it, it, there can also be mental health stuff too, um, which that sometimes doesn't, doesn't get said a lot, but it, it, it could be a combination of wide range of emotions, uh, trauma that was experienced, and then mental health as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it all kind of feeds on each other.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty insidious. Like, I mean, it it is, um, you know, pretty crazy. But I, I do think that uh, shame plays a, a a really big part in, in it so that you don't have to feel it anymore. Because it really, I mean, shame hurts. I mean, it cuts deep.
1: Mm-hmm. Were you able, as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, you're, you're drinking hard, you're drinking every day? Or are you drinking in private at, in your room?
2: I mean, I was drinking every day. Um, I was smoking weed every day. Um, I, you know, like, I, I mean, I basically did every, as soon as I started something, I just was really committed to it. <laughs> <laughs> was, you? Um... So it'd be like, it'd be like weeks before I stopped, like cocaine, like until like my nose, like fell, like fell off, you know, like yeah, yeah. needles I... until like I couldn't find a vein on my legs or arms or anywhere.
1: Was that as a as a teenager you were able to to, to get access to that kind of stuff?
2: Um, I mean, as a teenager, I was I was I, I hadn't used heroin at, at that point, but yeah, as a teenager, I was doing cocaine and alcohol and um, all those all the other ones. You
1: know. How are you? How are you getting access to that stuff? How are you paying for that stuff?
2: Well, I mean, you know, when my parents got a divorce, um, I basically became the ma- the man of the house. Like, you know, I I went to school. Uh, I'm basically like I was like a young adult um, at that point. You know I had a job that I worked at a Longhorn Steakhouse.
1: oh nice. yeah, yeah and
2: I was the um, they called it the quarterback, but basically it was the person that set up all the plates so that they they all look presentable as they go out um, and so and, and I also like cooked the steaks and I, was, I became like sort of a master griller of, of steaks, which is totally different than how I live today. But <laughs> um, how so, old were you
0: it, when you had this job?
2: Like 16, 17. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And so I made like 20 bucks an hour doing it. And nice. so and I would go I would work every single day with the exception of uh, Sunday or with the exception of Saturdays and also like a Tuesday or Thursday. And so I'd work every other day. So I I was actually bringing home a a lot of money, you know? And on one side of things, like I was handling business and sort of like cooking the steaks, but also like taking care of my mom a little bit and paying for some bills. But then on the other side, like when I wasn't doing those things, my whole life was falling apart. Everything about it, personal life, relationships, Uh, you know, like, I I was fighting to keep money, you know, all that stuff. Like I had this direction of like, I needed to take care of my mom and my sister. And then I needed to take care of like making money. And then like the drug habit just like took all of the money. So it was just a really, um, you know, almost dualistic lifestyle. If you know what I mean? I do. Um, It,
1: It sounds like you were high functioning. Like, like, you know, my uncle was a, was a union, uh, a union um, steel man in Pennsylvania for 40 years and shot cocaine the entire time. You know, a very high functioning addict. Yeah. Um, so you were able to manage both sides of this thing. Of course. And yeah. so even when you were getting into noodle- needles, you were still making money. Were you in the restaurant industry the, the whole
2: time? Well, I was in the restaurant industry, and, uh, but I ended up um, running my dad's company. What, and, what was um, that? And so, my dad owned a distribution company that uh, sold fruits and vegetables and everything that you would need to, like, basically open up a restaurant. Wow. Uh, And so, I was, um, at one point, um, when I first started, I was a uh, customer service, and then I was a sales rep, and then I became vice president, and then president, and then, you know, I basically ended up running the whole company. Um, Wow. Yeah. And so like I, i worked my way up, but that didn't happen until I got out of high school. Um, and you know, as a result of doing that, um, you know, when I was in sales, you know, I was pulling in like six figures, right? Yeah, you know, amazing. and, and I would like with an expense, account, like I was definitely like living like the ridiculous lifestyle. So I had so much, I had so much money. I remember one deal and this is way too much information, but I remember one, one deal, like they gave me a check for closing the deal that, you know, just the year before was as much as I made the whole year, wow. you know, like working at Longhorn and stuff. And so, you know, but they mix on top of that, like as a 21 or 22 year old kid making that kind of money, but also like feeling dead inside, you know, because I'm basically like, I mean, drinking and in order to go on these sales calls, I'm like taking like 30 or 40 Percocets.
1: Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wow. To feel normal.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Just to actually, just to get over the anxiety of having like a meeting that we're going to talk about millions of dollars with,
0: Mm -hmm. Right. you Mm -hmm. know,
2: like, like I I sold an account, uh, Applebee's, not a good restaurant, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know. All
1: apologies to our yeah. Applebee's listeners. Yeah. If
2: Applebee's is listening to this, I'm sorry. Um, but it's not really that great of a restaurant. But I sold a deal with Applebee's. And um, I mean, it was gigantic. It was like 45 locations. And wow. to sell them everything that they need in their entire store. It was millions and millions of dollars. And like, they couldn't write me big enough checks. And I was literally just. Putting it directly into my veins and my nose, you know, like into fancier cars. I think at one point I had two houses, two cars, a motorcycle. You know, I had everything that a 22 year old kid probably shouldn't have. Right. (laughs) A 23 year old kid. Yeah. And, but but literally, like I, I, at some point, I felt like I was Superman, like unstoppable. Right? No, until everything comes crashing down because, like, all of a sudden, like I'm no longer able to function unless I take a massive amount of drug. And then all of a sudden, like I became a liability.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly how you know my mom burned a hole through her nose. Is that she was she was using it at first to feel sexy, and then she created a distribution company to pay for her habit yep and then you know she's using that um, uh she's it's it's just a, it just starts to to cycle and disintegrate at, at a certain point i I wonder can you can you talk about um what that looked like for you when things really started to fall apart when you couldn't manage your life anymore?
2: Well, uh, I think that the really the sort of the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, was, um, you know, I, I started going to treatment center and like in trying to get my problem kind of cleaned up. But I realized that I had a problem after I went to the first treatment center and got out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was I, I wrecked. A, I, so I, I had my motorcycle.
1: Oh, you and, wrecked the bike. I wrecked
2: the bike and that was, that's amazing. um,
1: That's how my dad got clean. He wrecked the, he wrecked his bike and then said, Oh, I've got a problem.
2: Yeah. I, well, I wrecked my bike and then I went back out. Like I was sober. I had about six months sober and I went back out um, and I started doctor shopping and I realized like how powerful this thing that I have um, this, this disease that I have. Oh yeah. And, you know, all of a sudden, like, I couldn't get the pills. And then after I couldn't get the pills, like, that's when I realized that, like, heroin was better than pills
0: Mm. uh, or
2: hit harder. Yeah. I saw this. Yeah, I saw this unfold in my life. And it was uh, there was moments of clarity that were just so painful. Like, uh, you know, and and right around this time, there was uh, there was moments where I was like, I would you know, like come to, I would almost be like blacked out and I'd be like staring in the mirror and I'd be like, who is that person? Like literally staring in the mirror and like not knowing who is staring back at me, thinking it is someone else uh, because I lost so much weight or, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and so doctor shop and all, all of what I just mentioned, like, you know, that was, you know, I was hanging out in houses and passing out because of, you know, the heroin. In bed and and being okay with having like cockroaches walk across to you because the house that you were in because you couldn't really move from from the drugs that you were doing, and being okay with that is just something that seems unfat or or even worse. I would get in this car with people that I really didn't know and that was not not safe to be around. And we would call the drug dealer and we'd call this Mexican cartel to come deliver drugs. And I would have these moments of clarity because I would start getting anxious. And it was called like user anticipation. And so everyone in the car, and this is way too graphic, but I'm going to share it anyways, because it, it, it just shares the realness. The, the Mexican drug dealer would pull up in front of us and every person in the car had to get out of the car and throw up because we were so excited that we were about to get drugs and alcohol. We would, yeah. we would literally be throwing up because we needed the drugs so bad. And also we were having user anticipation. Like you we, we were about to get high. And those are like moments that like the normal person can't even, can't even fathom, you know, it's like all of the stuff that I was saying about the practice and all this stuff. It's like, you know, like the practice has literally saved my life. I mean, it's been one of the most unbelievable things that I've ever, ever done for myself.
1: Um, so, so it was the practice that, that saved you. Was that within a treatment center environment? Can you describe that revelation that there was something that could save you?
2: Well, I mean, it happened. uh, So I went to treatment and treatment gave me a program that I had to do in order to like stay sober. And, um, the last time through the treatment center, like, you know, I walked in, I was like, you know, 135 pounds. And right now I'm 185 pounds. Wow. You know, so, um, and I had arms that were swollen. They were swollen like red baseball bats, like that you would play with like a toddler and uh, full of infection. And I walked into the treatment center and they actually strapped me down to the gurney, took me up there. And, um, and, when I got done with that uh, medically detox, I, re- I remember like saying to myself that I want to live again. And this is the last time through last treatment center. I'm still sober from this, this point. And um, they, they let me off the bed. I uh, like I was shaking and twitching and sweating and all this kind of stuff. They let me off the bed. And I remember getting directly on my knees and saying I wanted to live again. And um, as soon as that happened, like I made that sort of admission or maybe even foxhole prayer. Um, I began to do what the actual hospital told me to do, like and what they prescribed was going to 12 step meetings, working the steps, going to therapy, having, you know, in, um, managing my anxiety and depression and, you know, finding a sober network of people that were like minded that, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And I I was, do- I was doing it all. And so about six months into, you know, sobriety, this lady walked into my life um, and I was working the 11th step at the time. And the 11th step is it's basically sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. That's what the step is. And in order, you you kind of work the steps the same way that you would do like work in the sutras,
1: you know, the yeah. one
2: liners, you know, like you don't just read the sutras and like check it off. It's like, yeah, I I got that. Like you have to live
1: them, you have
2: to live them, you have to process them, you have to maybe journal about them, talk to another person, talk to a teacher about them, you know, and that's exactly what you do with the steps. And so right as I was sort of praying to have, uh, you know, this step sort of reveal itself to me and and process it, this lady walked in and she was like, hey, I I think you should do my yoga, uh, this yoga class that I'm offering. And I was like, "There's not a chance in hell that I'm going to do your yoga class. Like, it's not going to happen."
1: You You're know, an like, Ohio yoga. guy. Ohio was, guys
2: don't do that. Yoga, right. Uh, <laughs> yoga is for girls. I'm not interested in it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and this is really before yoga was cool. You know, like yeah. this is still 2000s. Um, I think that uh, it was a little bit better than maybe the 90s or even the 80s. But like, you know, this is early 2000s, and and I was like, "It's not happening." And and so, uh, I brushed her off and I saw her six more times and that's when, um, after the sixth time, I, I thought the lady was, you know, harassing me or stalking me or something like that. And, um, she, uh, she was like, I think you need to do my yoga class. She asked me one final time and I was like, fine, I'll do your goddamn yoga classes. And I this said. is in the center. This is happening. Uh, uh, you mean in the treatment center? Yeah. Uh, no, I would have been about six months sober. So this was actually in like a 12 step meeting. Oh,
1: okay. Okay. Okay.
2: Thank yeah. You. So I'm, I'm out of the treat. I'm like basically living the treatment center plan that they, yeah. And like working with the sponsor and all this stuff. And then once I made it to the 11th step, once you, once you get done with your 20 days, like you don't go back to the treatment center, like you essentially just you're going to AA, you're going to therapy and those kind of things to help, you know, like manage your, your addiction and your compulsions and things like that. And so like I was out in the real, real world at this point. And, mm-hmm. um, and this, you know, she kept on showing up in my life. And then eventually I was like, fine, I'll do your, do your damn yoga class.
0: And what, what uh, were you doing for work at this time after you got out of the treatment center? Did you go back to working for your dad?
2: I was unemployable at that time.
0: Okay. So yeah. you're just like I,
2: taking care of yourself. Yeah. I, I literally could not, uh, you know, I was, it was the poorest I've ever been. And I had a, I had an ex-wife, um, that somehow.
1: Fuck you, you were know, married and all that. And all um, that.
2: I was married. Um, um, I, I, you know, divorced her, um, a little bit after my addiction, but I mean, she was a big part of like saving my life. Oh, wow. um, she really pushed me into sobriety and, and yes, I was married and, um, she, uh, you know, like it was, it was, that wasn't a good situation, but she definitely did save my life. Yeah.
1: I was, I was wondering if, if your parents had contributed to your sobriety, if they had, you know, how they had, um, coped with trying to, to get you, get you clean.
2: Yeah. I mean, they left, they walked away. Wow. Yeah, they were, they were done. Um, they reached a spot where they couldn't watch me kill myself because I would go over to like Christmas dinner and like pass out on their table. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd be eating like biscuits and fall asleep, you know, like mid chewing. I'm serious. Uh, Mm -hmm. like that, that happened more than once, you know, like eating Thanksgiving dinner and like passing out into the gravy or into the mashed potatoes because of the (laughs) amount of drugs that I took like, you know, an hour before.
0: Yeah. It's so challenging to, um, I think for a parent, especially to watch their child, you know, go through that and do all of these things to themselves and have no control at all over being able to really help, help them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They, and, and the best thing that they did was walk away. That was the best thing that they they did. I mean, yeah. the, helping me was was not good.
1: Harmony may cut this part out, but it's it's you know it's her parent her grandparents did the same thing. You know, they were living here in Calgary, and they they had a a child that had um, mental problems from an accident and started using. it. they I think they they moved eight hours away.
2: <laughs> yeah. So no. they couldn't Relocated. be. So
1: their home couldn't be broken into anymore by their yeah. own child.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty, that's pretty common actually, you know, mm-hmm. where there's these yeah. major life choices to get away from the person that is really struggling with addiction. Yeah.
1: You know? that's, and it's and a, those are,
2: those are hard. I mean, those are hard. I actually commend my parents like, cause I have three children right now and, uh, I can see the addict tendency, uh, tendencies in all of them and, um, in, and they've never seen their dad drink or use, and they've never seen their mom drink or use either, but uh, genetics is a real thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean yeah. science. Uh, and so, like, literally I could see, um, you know- uh, what, Yeah, what and, does that
1: look like? What does an, a, a, an addict tendency look like in a child?
2: Oh, man. Uh, wow, I, I don't know if I can answer that. It's, it's basically like there's a level of insecurity Um, And then there's also a level of ego and a a level of uh, control that a kid or sort of the addict tendencies in a kid will come through. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, uh, overly emotional, too, uh, to go on the roller coaster ride or to take everyone on the roller coaster ride when they operate and a lot of kids are like sort of like little tornadoes, but like when you really take your family on uh, like a very emotional roller coaster on a, on a daily basis, uh, when, when a kid is like hyper controlling, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that sort of things, um, you know, show, show up as sort of like the ism of the alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's interesting too. I find like, also, even like with Jedi, like once he gets into something, he gets like so into it. Like you were yeah. saying, you, you know, you never did anything just like kind of you just like everything was like full on
2: full on, yeah. or not at all. <laughs> right. It's either 100 or zero. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I can totally relate to that. Yeah. But you know, also- it's funny, too, because my parents, my parents are not addicts. Nice. My grandparents are not addicts either. But wow. their parents definitely yeah. Like, wow. I mean, like, terrible. Um, and so, I mean, we're talking about like, on one side, it's two generations removed. And on one uh, the other side, it's one generation. You know, it's like, so it's really interesting. Not, it was never modeled for me. I never heard about the uncles that lived in the gutters in the get like in the ghettos of, uh, you know, Ohio, right. um, drinking and using, you know, it was never modeled. I just became one because of genetics. And so, Um, you know, I had the equation and then based off of how I felt and the decisions that I made equaled out to be an addict. And that's, that's a scary, I crossed the line enough long enough that all of a sudden you can't cross back, you know, from a normal heavy drinker to all of a sudden, like, it's like a drinker that doesn't know how to, can't stop. It's not that they don't know how to stop. It's like, they literally, they cannot stop. They have a disease of the you know disease of the mind obsession of the mind and allergy of the body that that comes as a compulsion and that compulsion has to continue to be fed and you know it's craziness that's yeah.
1: amazing to me because I, I i felt like um kind of the the opposite where i didn't have a family member that wasn't using and i had multiple family members that were you know using themselves into the ground or under the ground and um but I still felt like I kind of knew that if I, I could use a little bit, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't end up dead. I wouldn't end up, you know, in a treatment center. I could just, I could, and I was like, wow, I feel like I've been, I've, I've, um, dodged a bullet genetically. And, um, because it, it, there's just so much, uh, avarice and drug use just, permeates the whole thread of the whole family but it it all sort of seems to also rest in this kind of trauma history that runs through the family so much trauma so much abuse so much sexual abuse yeah uh physical abuse and emotional abuse and i think maybe a piece of it is that i had gotten into yoga as a teenager and let that kind of be the kind of um thing that I would, that I was into. So I was constantly, you know, healing myself with Mm -hmm. this thing.
2: Um,
0: uh, interesting. It's curious, like what takes someone from, like you say, a heavy drinker that, you know, can still function and then pushes someone over the edge to like not being able to stop and then going into harder and harder substances.
2: Yep. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's a mystery of how like it actually sort of manifests in people's lives for sure. Yeah. Do you
1: feel the the same way about um other ish- other things in your life that you treat them in an addictive way whether it's say um like a like a coffee is a is a stimulant that, you know, works on us in a, in a very particular way with our brain chemistry, it's addictive. It doesn't destroy our lives, I th- I think. <laughs> Um, but we we become addicted to it, or Ashtanga Yoga is in itself is a kind of um, it's something that we um, takes a placeholder for uh, a you know a substance. Would you would you agree with that 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 sometimes we use Ashtanga Yoga as a, as a substitute for for another
2: kind of um, drug? Yeah, I mean. You know, uh, I, that's like what normal people always ask me. You know? it, it is. It's what normal. And so, R- Russell, thanks for being normal. Um, mm. but like, because, you know, in my head, it, it like it doesn't make sense because, you know, like you can't do something as healthy as what a stomach, I guess if the intention is that you're trying to do harm and, and believe it or not, people actually try and do harm while they're practicing yoga um, or at least they approach it in a way that might be harmful. Uh, maybe that's a better way to put it. And so, um, but it's, the practice is healing, you know, and it's, it's the exact opposite of, of like drugs and alcohol. And it, it can occupy the same space and fill people up, very similar to how like the spirits or alcohol can, you know, um, you know, like fill people up. But the, the feeling is, is that you're, you're doing something good for yourself, you know? So it, yes, they occupy the same space, but the practice is, you know, it's not addictive. I I mean, if anything, it, in the beginning, it's okay to be addictive to addicted to it because like, you're, you're not killing yourself as a result of practicing. You're killing yourself as a result of putting needles and heroin in your body or cocaine, you know, so it's a, it's very interesting, you know, thing because everyone asked me that and it's like, I, I mean, I don't approach my practice as addictive, but it does occupy the same space, but I'm healing, you know, it fills, fills my God size hole in my, in my soul up oh, yeah. just the same way as like drugs and alcohol did, but I'm not craving to practice. I mean, most of the time I don't want to practice you know,
1: exactly. That's I mean, like, it.
2: That's it. Is that I, I don't actually want to do it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, like, uh, I, as an addict, I, I don't want to do the practice. I do the practice because of what it gives me because mm-hmm. of the mental shift, you know? So like normal people are like, Oh yeah, you've traded one addiction for the other. I'm like, no, I don't want to do this, but I do it because it works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, I feel better about myself. I'm more comfortable in my own skin. You know, I can be myself on, you know, in real life or social media, or I can be, you know, I can be whatever I want to be. I can achieve whatever I put my mind to it. And the practice has taught me that too, you know, and, and drugs and alcohol didn't teach me anything besides checking out. It's the opposite of, of what we're doing, Mm -hmm. you know, but like, you know, a lot of times like people look at Ashtangis and, you know, they think this obsessive, discipline. You know all this stuff, and it's like that's what like uh, that's sometimes what lazy people are looking at for people that are committed to something, right? right. Yeah, it's like you know, a lazy person looks at someone who's committed to doing it, and it's like, how do you do that every day? Like, cheese, like what's going on? it must be
1: addictive, like,
2: right? Yeah, it must be addictive. You know, yeah. like you're addicted to that, right? And it's like, no, I'm not. I'm actually just trying to serve like my greatest purpose in life. I'm trying to be the best person that I can possibly be. And the yoga practice gives me that vehicle to try and be that every day.
0: It's so interesting. You know, Russell and I have talked about this a little bit about like how maybe some brains, some people, maybe all people, I don't, I don't know, but you know, have these, this addictive or this obsessive compulsive kind of um, propensity And so no matter what you're kind of into, you're going to, like, be doing it in a way that it's, you know, kind of addictive, it's driven, it's, you know, so whether it's work, and you become a workaholic, or it's alcohol, and you become an alcoholic, or it's yoga, and you become a (laughs) yogaaholic, or it's, you know, running, and now you're like doing the ultra marathons, or, you know, whatever it is, or anorexia, the not eating, you know. Right.
2: Um,
0: it's just sort of like a circuitry in your brain, and maybe it's more about, like you say, choosing something that is is creating health and also creating the awareness of this pattern, rather than.
2: Uh, checking, out. checking
0: out, right? right. Like checking yeah. in and being like, okay, yeah, I have this pattern. I see it rather than like checking out and being like, you know, not paying attention. And, and that just kind of moves you further and further into whatever pattern it is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, lately, everyone's been talking to me about like, oh yeah, like I need to find some sort of balance in my life. Mm hmm you know, like, I, I feel like that's sort of the flavor of the, the month or the last two months, I need some balance. And it's like, like, I mean, if you're always searching for balance, like, it's not going to happen, like, it's not happening, you know, it's <laughs> like, and to search for it, like means that they're suffering at the root because you're never going to find it. Mm. So it's like, you know, and I feel like that's the same sort of kind of thing. I'm, oh, I'm searching for balance. I need to give up on my practice or any of this stuff. It's like, if you want something, if you want to be a better person, you know, you want to raise money for people who are struggling with addiction, or you want to be Instagram famous or whatever, you know, whatever your goals are, whatever it is, doesn't matter. There's no balance. You know, it's your ex- the accepting of the situation. It's, it's doing the work and in the process, not being like a neurotic, aggressive ridiculous person it's really trying to find harmony you know for lack of pun you know it's like <laughs> like you're literally trying to be out of balance and find acceptance you know and and yeah. too often i think people like look at things and they're like i mean some people just are not willing to you know be out of balance and sometimes you have to be there has to be some sort of discipline or striving towards something else um, instead of just being in our comfort zone. I don't know. Does that make sense or no? It, it really
1: does. It, it reminds, I just, I brought it up because um, someone asked me if I was spiritually bypassing through using, through doing Ashtanga yoga, uh, <laughs> rather than addressing this, this mental issue I was struggling with. What? And I thought, well, as long as I'm doing the thing, I'm doing Ashtanga yoga. I don't, have a real clear idea of what's wrong with me yet. I'm just trying to fix things first. And and that took a long period of time of practice with great discipline and enthusiasm just like Patanjali asked of us. Right. And so when I think about what's actually happening there that the brain has to physically rewire itself so that it can appreciate that it can experience joy again. In, instead of um, you know filling a, a a void by checking out, then you know that's going to take a long time. It's going to take a long time to physically rewire the brain, and I think uh, it's okay to um, to do that.
2: Yep.
0: And it's interesting, like this idea of of balance. You know, I think it's it's not a static state, right? Right. <laughs> and so we're always kind of you know, going in and out of this sort of perfect thing. Because as soon as you kind of find that perfect day or that perfect combination of things where you're like, oh, I had a really balanced day, <laughs> you know, and then you try to fix it in that state. Now, all of a sudden, right. that's going to take you out of balance again, right? Right. So it's it's a kind of a funny concept that you need. It's in flux all the time, and you're constantly needing to kind of recalibrate to... Yeah you know, different, um, situations and circumstances coming up.
2: Yep. I, I agree with that hundred percent. It, it's uh, the whole practice. And, you know, I've had to on podcast, I've, I've gotten asked what you asked me there, Russell, like a million times
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, <laughs> because people, you know, don't understand it and you know and it's okay they don't have to understand it it's not, and you know like i try and explain it the best i can because addiction is confusing people don't understand it and if you're kind of attached to it like there's someone in your life that you know is struggling with it you don't want to talk about it that's for damn sure
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> can you
1: that was a, that was a, another interesting thing that you mentioned um when i was kind of going through your work and, and your book about um using your voice finally um, you said it literally took me nine years of practicing yoga before I was okay with my past. There was so much pain and so much struggle. I just never thought i would really I would be ready to tell my story th- that's something that i really i re- really resonated with is that th- it was carrying so much shame and embarrassment about my 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 family and about what had happened to me and the the trauma that I had experienced growing up in that family it was really difficult to talk about. Uh, can you talk about how you're able to start using your voice to tell your story?
2: Um, wow. When I was maybe eight years in sobriety, something like that. I remember that, uh, I was actually trying to practice, uh, being grateful. And, um, and so I had to start looking at all the guilt, shame, and remorse that I had and, um, and processing it. I remember like working the steps and going through it and sort of, I don't know, experiencing like all of those emotions and not, I, they all felt so bad. And, and this is that, like, I, I think it was like year eight or nine of, you know, in recovery, You know, Mm -hmm. so you like, you think you're like out of the woods and it's like, oh, wait a second. Like I'm just on the next layer of onion. Right. And, um, and so I remember, um, and, and this will make sense. The people at Lululemon, um, which is a thing that, me and Harmony actually, we, we like went on a trip together, right? Harmony. Yes,
0: we did. (laughs) We went on a trip together (laughs) with (laughs) many other people.
2: (laughs) It was, it was crazy. There was like, 300 400 people and yeah. uh, blue lemon people uh talked me into uh and i was in the process of like working the steps again but uh they they sort of like unblocked my throat chakra huh. um, to a certain extent where i became like not afraid of sharing who i was and that was like through the practice of of really i would say mindfulness but um acceptance of my story and, uh, so I started telling it to people that were outside of recovery mm-hmm. and that's when I started really doing the work of, um, which I'm still doing today where I, I like, I go into communities like, t- uh, tomorrow I will be in South Carolina and I'll be speaking about addiction and giving a 30 minute talk at a fundraiser, um, for a, for a lady here for a foundation down there. Um, I'm just there for a day and I go down there and speak and, and help her try and raise money for addiction and a bunch of other services and stuff like that. And so nowadays, like, you know, it was all through the practice of like working the steps again and becoming grateful and becoming a a vulnerable and through the suggestion of like the people at Lululemon, which, which were amazing in my life at the time.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, I remember we were on a, like a three hour bus ride, I think from Vancouver up to Whistler, maybe it's two hours. Yes. It felt long. <laughs> but, and I had asked you about it. We had known each other a little bit from Mysore, but um, in Mysore, you weren't really speaking about it. This was maybe yeah. in 2012 or 13 that yeah. we had met. Cause we both have Michaela and Jedi who are around the same age. So yeah. um, we spent some time together, but then on that bus trip, we sat together and I was, kind of asking you some some questions and yeah. and then you start to open up and you're like, yeah, I'm thinking about writing a book about it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah. So yeah, it was like and, the beginning really, of the journey.
2: It was the beginning of the journey. And and it, it happened before that trip where they planted in my head. And then we did a really powerful exercise um, at the the conference that we were there that really shifted where you had like 20 minutes to look, you had to look someone in the eye and you had to sit knee to knee and you had to tell them your life story. And it was the first time I didn't hold back. It was the first time I didn't hold back. I literally told this woman that I do not know just for the record. I do not know (laughs) her. I still do not know her. And, um, and I told her the whole story and Mm. like, and she was in tears. Like I, and they, after that, that little exercise, they pull, they pulled me aside and they, they said that this lady was, had to go to her room because she was crying so much because of my story. And so they made me tell the executives, like the people in charge there, my story too, like in a very similar fashion. And they, 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 and they basically invited me to write my book. I accepted on that day that I was going to write my book.
0: Wow! Yeah, yeah,
2: that's incredible. Yeah, so, so yeah, you were right there, Harmony.
0: Yeah, I was. <laughs> I remember.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I I
1: remember when um when I started being able to speak, uh. It, 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 it it's multi layered because there, in the beginning it was it was kind of I was trying to entertain people with my story and then it became, um uh something that I was you know I was bored of my own story and then you know I sometimes I would I would try and use the story to to uh help people rather than entertain them but there was always kind of an element of performance to it. But just to say that I remember when I first started being able to speak um it was it was using uh it was using MDMA and it was using a it was using a drug that that can be abused but when i learned about what the drug was doing it was it was dumping serotonin on in my brain which is you know what happens when you're in love or you're you're um you're experiencing beautiful things you're doing yoga you're getting a serotonin response which is different from say um uh you know, cocaine or or other kinds of things where you might be getting a dopamine response, which it can, it is an incredibly addictive kind of sense of of gratification. Yep. And so, just just to say that at a, at a certain point, and I hope I'm I'm making I'm I'm making a kind of um, logical sense here. Help me if I'm not. But is that I, I feel like now I, I'm starting looking at my reality and thinking like, okay, this is creating a a dopamine response. Uh, I'm getting gratification from this, or this is giving me a serotonin response. And I'm, and I'm using this, this experience to feel flooded with love. And I'm kind of watching that with awareness and, and I'm, and I'm wondering about, what is, an, what is an actual object? I guess really what it comes down to it. It's like I'm, I'm watching with awareness as things have these effects and whether or not they are um, a drug or an object or an experience seems almost immaterial to the effect it has on me.
2: It's now, probably all just chemistry, Russell. That's,
1: that's what I'm trying to ask yeah. about. It's like if it's, it's just chemistry, complaints. then... Yeah but certain things for some of us are creating like a serious issue and i i don't want to recommend mdma even if it is healing because it might be then abused by someone who has a a chemical
2: dependency right but i remember i I was in mysore and people were doing like ayahuasca or something like that yeah
0: yeah Yeah. Yeah. it's very popular
2: for us for a similar effect yeah should you do, like, Taylor, you want to do ayahuasca with it? And I was like, there's not a chance in hell. I don't want to burn down my sore. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm the wrong person to ask for that. But yeah, I, but like, you know, people go and have like magical, amazing processing, all that sort of stuff. But, but yeah, I mean, what you're describing is, you know, dopamine is the same thing as like you completing your task. So right one dopamine it's like you check off the box of like take care of your take care of your business essentially right you know it's like you want uh, the hat ha- you want to be happy it's like you know like you similar to mdma like you know it's like go you know find someone who you can connect with and love You know, That's right. all those kind of things it's 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 basically all chemistry mm-hmm. yeah
1: and being aware of that you know, might, you know, might help someone say, well, I, I can get the same dopamine from um, getting a bonus at work rather than, you know, snorting Coke. Or right. if, you know, if I, if I need to experience, experience serotonin, I know I can do that by looking at the face of my child or as a sunset. Uh, I, I think it's, um,
0: but that's so rational and logical. And I think that the addictive nature of substances isn't rational or logical. It's, um, it's like a drive, and so it's a compulsion. And yeah, so it's you can say that and you can know that, but mm-hmm. the what's driving you is a compulsion is an obsession is feels like it's completely out of your control.
2: Yeah, I, I like there's not even a good, you know, to explain it to a couple normies like there's not a, there's not even like a good. You know, like example of it, you know, like you could say like, oh, it's like, you know how you have to go pee and (laughs) you have to go pee, you know, like, and like, uh, well, that's the same as addiction. Like we have to do it just like you have, like your bladder feels like it's about to explode, Uh, but but it's different because it's actually like even grosser feeling than that Uh, Uh, because you feel like you're sort of being dragged to do something that you know is not really in line with what you should be doing mm-hmm. right um, you know or what's in alignment with your life and that kind of stuff and so it's it's really interesting there's i i mean uh, even cigarettes you know like there's time in my life where i you know smoke plenty of cigarettes and and it, it doesn't it still does not compare Wow, to, you know, to the compulsion that you would get as a result of snorting some cocaine Wow! Yeah. I yeah. feel
0: very fortunate that I never went down the path of, of hard drugs because yeah. definitely my addictive centers of my brain are uh, yeah very uh, lit up. <laughs> you,
2: just start, you just start realizing that if you do get sober, like myself, mm-hmm. that you're one of the lucky ones. You mm-hmm. know, so the same stuff like you know that I was talking about earlier with having a second chance. And live in life to the fullest. Like you start seeing that really, you know, we're talking about from a disease like how I had it, which everyone who I hung around had it to like my extent. We're talking like a 3% chance that people are going to recover. Right. I, three, three, folks. Yeah. Three. With the, with fentanyl and needles, it's only 3%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so you start realizing that, uh, like, you're one of the lucky ones, like, and Harmony, you're one of the lucky ones, too. It's like, you know, you, you didn't use any drugs or alcohol, like, you know, don't. Well, I did use drugs and alcohol, just not
0: (laughs) the heavy, hardcore ones that I'm pretty sure would have killed me.
2: Don't use the hard ones. But you just start realizing (laughs) that, you know, you really have been given a second chance. And, you know, like, you start, once you get sober, it's like, wow, it's like, not everyone does this. Many people die yeah, and I made it out alive. And so like I try and use, you know, the, the fact, my voice, my story, you know, my influence, whatever it is to raise money for the person who's still struggling so that they can, you know, hopefully we can help provide some resources for them, you know, to raise the awareness of it, you know, like I, I really try and do whatever I can. To show that someone in addiction can walk and talk and be who they're supposed to be without feeling like sh- like shame or guilt or any of that stuff. To mm-hmm. look society in the world, like I try and be an example for that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like you can be who you who you're supposed to be, even though that you know that you have this disease of alcoholism and, and drug addiction. It doesn't have to be the pink elephant in the room. It doesn't have to be like you know, no one wants to talk about this drugs and alcohol. It's like, I can help with the stigma, Mm -hmm. you know? And so like our work with national recovery month. And I mean, just to come full circle, it's like, all of this is just a sort of an expression of like how to be a part of the solution instead of the problem, because I am one of the lucky ones, you know, like I don't want another 30 of my friends to die. Mm -hmm. You know, like I go to AA meetings today or I go to 12 step meetings today and, and literally like, I mean, there's been a bunch of people that had 30 plus years of sobriety that it went out as a result of like the anxiety that was caused from the pandemic. Wow. I I know for my case that I will not make it back in. I don't have another sobriety in me. I do have another drink. I do have another drink or drug in me, but I do not have another sobriety in me. Uh, Like I'm, I'm past that point.
1: It was interesting. Philip Seymour Hoffman, I think, experienced the same thing you know he had been sober 30 years was at a cast party everybody you know they rapped and it's like well you know i'm 47 i can have a glass of champagne and he was dead in six months
2: yep i can't tell you how many times that's happened in my life like i mean it's so many i can't count on fingers and toes where like someone drinks or uses again or drinks and uses and dies like in three six nine months Mm -hmm. you know I just know that uh, if they're with needles and heroin and stuff, like it's even higher percentage chance mm-hmm. yeah. that you're gonna die as a result of it. Yeah. You know, like I tell my sponsees, I'm like, you know what, you can you're gonna have to be get really comfortable with being uncomfortable because for you to drink or use again is to, to sign your death certificate. You know, like in addicts, we, we end up in jails, institutions, or dying. That's yeah. that's our fate. And it's a progressive. It's fatal, serious um, chronic relapsing disease that is not, that if not taken care of uh, will kill you for sure. I've seen it too many times
1: well i'm I'm glad you said that and i I didn't want to leave you with the impression that i that i that someone with this disease can take care of it by rationally examining you know what yeah. brain chemistry is happening to them. I didn't want to leave you with that impression um, just to just to say that i i I'd love to hear from you how people could help um, contribute to National Recovery Month, how people could help contribute to the, the Trinity Foundation.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, there's a couple different ways that you could do it. One is, um, you know, we always need teachers to teach for us. And this would be in treatment center class. Um, or uh, this would like I was describing earlier, or it would be a class that you would host in the month of September um, mm-hmm. and actually have it be a fundraiser. So we need teachers to teach in treatment centers, but we also in the month of September, we need people to basically teach classes to raise some awareness and raise some money for us. Um, and those are both ways that people can kind of fill in. Um, the other thing is the found, uh, foundation or charity is always looking for, uh, volunteers to help with sort of the odds and ends and a- admin part of, of the organization. And so if you have a particular skill that is, um, you know, could be useful, fundraising or graphic design or charity work, those kind of things, um, you know, or, or more, uh, reach out to us because we need support um, from the yoga community, people who believe in the yoga practice. Um, and then we also, we need um, help with With just donations, you know, I've asked a bunch of people to teach uh, classes for uh, to like raise donations, but it's also like one of the most powerful things that you can do is help save a life by making a donation. It can be a $20 monthly donation or it it can be a $1,000 one-time donation, whatever it is. Um, You know, we've had thousands of people that have uh, basically contributed monthly or yearly um, you know, to, to our organization to help fund the programs that I've, I've, talked about today. And, and, and all of them, um, are like, we believe that it's, it's a, an essential need for someone to use the yoga practice, um, as a tool of their recovery. Like we, we believe this. And if you believe the same thing, you know, like you want to, and, and want to raise money for us or teach a yoga class or, you know, like help with one of your skills or any of that stuff, reach out to us because we definitely need the help more people, the better. It's like, it's essentially a grass, uh, grassroots effort.
0: So. Yeah. That's amazing. And there's so many people I think who have struggled with addiction and addictive behaviors in the past that come to this practice and really have benefited from the healing benefits and that increased awareness, that understanding of ahimsa to oneself above all else first so mm-hmm. that it can you know, radiate out outward. And I'm really excited because I'm going to be hosting a donation class for the Trini foundation on Saturday, September 18th. So if people want to attend that class online, there'll be more information up on my website. And if you can't attend that class, there's, I'm sure tons of classes happening for the Trini foundation all throughout the month of September.
2: Yeah. So first off, Harmony, thank you so much for teaching a class for us. Like, um, and make sure like uh, we'll make sure that we promote it um, on all of our social media channels. But um, also there, there's another 75 classes that are happening um, in September. And so we're trying to raise our goal is to try and raise thirty thousand dollars. That's what we're trying to do. I think
0: um, I think that's, that's easily achievable. I think we should make it 50,000.
2: Yeah. Well, I like to, uh, blow past, the I, I like the <laughs> expectations.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. So uh, 50,000 is great, but let's just do the 30 first and let's get the other 20 after. So okay. yeah, yeah, but 30,000, uh, dollars $30, is our goal and in one month that, that basically like helps, uh, fund uh roughly 500 yoga scholarships um and uh and also like all, teach all of the classes that we teach and like puts us essentially back on budget for the year which is pretty awesome so That's because this last uh, 2020 was a pretty a pretty good year but 2021 because of how hectic it has been um it's actually been more hectic than when we were kind of at the stay at home orders here in in Ohio and in the United States Uh, 2021 has been more difficult to actually navigate. Um, I agree. Yeah,
0: (laughs) it feels it feels absolutely like uncertain about everything. (laughs) Yeah,
2: well, I mean, 2020, like they told us to stay home, and we were like, "Yeah, let's stay home." Like this is good. And then all of a sudden, like 2021 rolls around, they're like, "We might stay at home. We might not. You might have to wear a mask, and you might not. But you should get a vaccine. But we're not sure about the vaccine. But you should probably take it." And we're sitting (laughs) there going, like what is happening with this work?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think you said it perfectly.
2: <laughs> oh God, I don't get it. And so uh, there's been a level of anxiety and, and that has shown up basically uh, in our lack of fundraising. We've, uh, the training foundation is uh, this year has done well, but it, it has done much better in the years before. Um, and, and we're trying to write the, write the ship right now.
0: Well, I'm excited to be a part of it and I'm absolutely just always so impressed with your heart and your initiative and all the things that you and your family i know that jess is really involved in the administrative part of the trini foundation and
2: yeah she um, she works her butt off
0: yeah she certainly does and 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 she
2: puts up with me too so
0: (laughs) i know that she has like a very challenging work-life balance doesn't
1: she (laughs)
2: I'll take that as a compliment. Um, Along
0: with the three children.
2: They're, diff- they're more difficult than I am. Uh, yeah, probably not. But.
0: You know what they say in India, your husband is your your other child. So. Right,
2: right. Yeah, she takes care of me more than, than probably the kids.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: thank you again for sharing your story again. I, and I know you've, you've had to do this a, a number of times, but I'm, I'm grateful that you've, you've been so generous with us and, and, you uh, know, I hope we haven't been um, uh, too awkward in, 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 talking to you about
2: it. No, no, I actually, I, well, first off, I really appreciate the support that you guys are giving us um, especially for the month of September. That means a lot. Um, and also like you asked some really great questions and so I appreciate you having me on the show and um, it means a lot to me and and to a lot of people that I represent that uh, you guys had me on here. So
0: Well, thanks so much for coming, Taylor. It's so nice to reconnect with you again. Yep. Let's do it sooner rather than later.
2: That sounds like a plan. Let's do that. (laughs) Okay. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon.